Welcome to Valley Community Church. Our Sunday sermons are available online to help you grow in your Christian faith. Our messages are practical and applicable truths from the Bible for today's life challenges. And now, Senior Pastor David Schmaltz. Well, we're in a series called Why We Worship, and we're part two this week. And uh, <clears throat> as I wanted to encourage you and in, in, in to remind you that we're kind of ramping up. What I'm doing is a lot of background, and you've got to hang with me because we're going to do some, some uh, Bible study, but it's, it's not comprehensive, but it's my attempt to try to give us a nice, firm background or foundation so that when we get further into the series, you'll understand. Because we've got a question here. Why do we worship? Why do we do what we do? Why do we take the time and set it apart to let the worship team lead us into that deep place where we can connect with God? And we're going to talk about that and uh, so, you know, so that you understand the foundation. And when you understand the foundation, then there's a lot more value and meaning and purpose, you'll see, as, as, we, uh, as we study it. So I'm going to jump right in here. Last week we talked about, and the subtitle here today is God Trains His People. Last week we talked about Abraham. We came to Abraham and, uh, and what we learn is that, indeed, Abraham does become the father of Isaac, and the promise is fulfilled. And the stage is set for Abraham's blessing to be passed on to the world. Remember, he said to be a father, but also a father of what? Many nations. And so there was going to be uh, an incredible uh, outpouring of blessing to the world that would come through Abraham's life. But more than anything, as, as a result of Abraham being a man of faith and Abraham being a man of worship. Then comes Jacob, of course, is, is one of the sons of Isaac, and Jacob is the one that the promise uh, goes forward in. And uh, Genesis chapter 28, 13 through 15, it's passed on to Jacob this reminder, this covenant of the promise of God to be a blessing to many nations, to be a blessing to all of mankind. And so as we read it, God says to him, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Of course, that was the same promise to Abraham and to Isaac. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. That's a lot. And you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. So God gives the same promise to, Jake, uh, to Isaac and then Isaac to Jacob. And uh, so God has this promise of, of a land. We know it be, to be called Canaan land, and it was going to be given to them, promised to, to Abraham. It's the land that he went to when God first called him, but there were generations that needed to pass before the, the deed was finally signed for that land to be given to them. And of course, the land repre represents to the people of God so much more than just a physical property or, or, or a, a land. It is the uh, fulfillment of God's promise and blessing. So Jacob has 12 sons, and they become the foundation of God's people, and they eventually grow into a small nation. I'm skipping over a lot of Bible here, aren't I? Going right into Egypt where they grow, they grow and grow million, maybe two million strong. And then God promises Moses... He says to him in Exodus chapter six, seven, and, uh, 6 and 7, he says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. 
I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. What we see here is a promise from God to take them out of Egypt and to make them into a people, but we also see another layer of prophetic promise. Again, it begins to come through. God is, is going all the way back to Adam and Eve to say, I'm going to make this right. And God is gathering a people to himself so that he can fulfill that. Okay, so he can fulfill that. And now this promise expands even further, even to the point where we can extract from it to, in our New Testament times, even to the church, what is the intention of God? What does God want to do among us? We can break it up, and, and we have this in our, up on our wall, and we have this in our membership information, and these four different promises. God says, I will bring you out. For the, Egypt, or for, the, for the Israelites, it was to bring them out of Egypt. For us, to bring us out of the world. He said, I will come and I'll rescue you, pull you out of the world, and draw you to myself. And then the second promise, I will free you from being slaves. Obviously, we've got a lot of world in us, and we're still bound up with the sinful nature. And God promises through his son to bring us to a place where we'll experience freedom from the power of sin, that the Egypt, the world, the world system will be extracted from us. The more that we submit in lordship, as Andrea said, the more we will experience real freedom in our life, freedom from sin, freedom from the power and the control of sin and the enemy and, and his minions. Thirdly, the promise, I will redeem you, says God. And he goes on, not only just freedom, but he's going to give us a purpose, okay? And that is awesome too, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to be set free. It's kind of like you're, 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 you're cast out of the prison and then, okay, what do I do now? Well, God says, I've got something for you to do now. I've got a, an individual purpose. And we know Jesus taught that quite a bit. And so he says, I'm going to redeem you. And we see this restoration in other words, God is not only going to save us and set us free from bondage, and is he going to, he's going to bring us out, but he's also going to restore in us what God's intention was. And that is for us to become his, his people, just like he did the Egyptians. He said, okay, I'm, going to, I'm sorry, the, the Israelites. He said, I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to bring you into the desert. For 40 years, God trains them. He teaches them. And what is he teaching them to be and to do? Well, to be his people, to be worshipers, to be those who would recognize him, follow him with a cloud in the daytime and the fire at night, the pillar of fire. God was training them. And then finally, that promise, I will take you as my own people, and that's what he did. He said, now, I'm going to, I'm going to draw you to myself. So he, he brings them to a mountain, right? Mount Sinai, where they see the fire on the mountain. And now at this time, God says, only Moses can come and be and meet me face to face and, and experience the, the, the power of my presence. So there is this separation that exists, but the heart of God is clear. I want my people, and I want them to be worshipers. And so there he says, there's going to be fulfillment. And in what we learn is both the Israelites, they now see their identity has been completely changed from being slaves to people who have a purpose and a vision and a hope, which was what? To receive that land that had God had promised to their father Abraham. So God says, look, I'm dusting off that promise, and I'm letting you know I am going to fulfill it. So he's going to bring them into that land. He says, but... 
I've got to teach you how to be my people. Because there's still a lot of Egypt in you. Still a lot of lies. Still a lot of uh, uh, you know, worldliness. That, that, and I've got to teach you to know how. And Jesus, and just kind of getting ahead of myself, Jesus kind of shows his cards by saying, look, I'm going to tell you what the Father's really looking for. Worshippers. Worshippers. So he wants to teach his people how to be worshipers of the true God. They were about to learn who he was and what he required of them. So in the desert, over this period of time, they see him as a a, a fire on top of the mountain. And Moses comes down. And as they get lonely, as they begin to struggle with what happened to Moses, he's gone for a full month. What happened to Moses? They begin to worship. They they said, well, look, we're out here. We need a God. So they fashion themselves a golden idol, and they begin to worship that. Moses comes down and says, what on earth are you doing? Earth opens up. A good percentage of them get swallowed up. And he says, those of you who have come out here to worship God, come to me right now, and they do. And right then and there, you would think after the Ted plagues that they would have figured that God was God, right? And that he protected them from the firstborn of every person in Egypt that had fallen dead, that they would experience who God was, but not yet. Still not there yet. They needed a lot more training to understand who God was. When Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai where God is, physically they see him, I mean, they see the fire, they see the cloud, they see this anomaly, this very strange happening. It's not a volcano. It's not a volcano. It's a mountain with God on it. And God is showing himself to be very, both mysterious and powerful. He establishes the covenant of works with his people where he gives them the Ten Commandments and the law in particular. God begins to say, now look, if you're going to be worshipers of me, we've got to make something very clear. You're very unclean. You you were born in sin, going all the way back to Adam, and you cannot approach me. You cannot. If somebody touches the mountain, they should be put to death. Can't get anywhere near God. He is much too holy for human beings. And God says, but I'm going to get you there. He says, so this is what we're going to do. I'm going to give you Ten Commandments. I'm going to teach you how to be holy and what holiness looks like. And he begins to lay that out. In the first 10, 20 years, uh, level one, you'd think they got it. They didn't get it. So when the time came to take Canaan land, they weren't ready because they began to doubt the words of God. And God said, well, after that whole generation had passed away and died, except for Joshua and uh, Caleb, thank you. Those two leaders, then round two, they're ready to go now. Now they're saying, we know who God is. We know that he is both mysterious and he is powerful and he's on our side. They had come to the place where they are now worshipers of the living God because they're saying, and how do we know that they were worshipers? Because as we learned last week, they are obedient. They saw him as he was. When you just worship God from afar, when you just see him as just a religious symbol or an icon, then you don't recognize him as God. And so worship is not really worship. Veneration, maybe. Acknowledgement, a knowledge of God. When they were ready for round two, when they, when they came up against what, what were going to be giants and the, 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 uh, the whole um, resistance of the enemy and coming into what God had for them, they weren't ready because they did not see God on the throne. They did not see God as who he is. 
which, getting ahead of myself here, that's why we lose a lot of spiritual battles. It's because we don't see God as God. In other words, we look in every direction. We turn to Visa, we turn to doctors, we turn to lawyers, we turn to everything in this world except God, who says, I rule over all things. And so God is trying to teach them that. Again, they don't get it the first time around, but they're learning, and they do get it in the second time around. So in order for them to be able to worship the Father, they must be holy. By obeying the laws God establishes, they can then remain in fellowship with him. However we learn, they can never really, really do so. Is it a setup by God? In a way. God wanted to show them, look, this covenant of works, my purpose is to to show you that you can never do it without me. And yet, for generation after generation after generation, they determined to walk in the law until uh, the time of Christ. And we learn in Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 11, exactly what was taking place. Check this out. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways, which is interesting because they saw his ways every single day. Can you imagine waking up every morning and finding bread on the ground? You walk out there and there's a loaf of bread in the middle of your yard. That'd be nice. That's exactly what they had. For 40 years, manna was on the ground every single morning except the first day of the week, the Sabbath. The day before, they had to pick up what? Twice as much. But can you imagine that? And then getting to the point, I mean, we can all sit there and, and look and say, gosh, how could they not see him as God? How could they doubt, doubt him? Well, I think if we look at our own hearts, we know why. We have sinful hearts, and we need a Savior. We need help. Verse 10, that is why I was angry with that generation. Their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. Verse 11 is the kicker. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Never could with the law. Never could in all that took place that to fully enter the rest. It was a divine setup in a good way, and you'll understand why. Through this whole bringing you to myself process, God gives a symbolic picture of what of worship that remains with us to this day. God shows the people how he wants to be approached. Jesus reveals this again in John 4, that the Father is looking for what? Worshippers. And worshipers with specific uh, functions or direction of that worship. One in worship, in truth, right? Honesty, coming before the Lord and saying, I am who I am. Scars, warts and all. Who I am, you know, to just be exposed in the light of his presence, okay? Not trying to put on any kind of facade, not trying to be religious, not trying to score any points with God, won't do it. Don't try to earn favor, do it using the law. Don't try to earn favor from God, trying to please him and doing any of that. (laughs) Don't. It's already been tried. And God did it at the best of his ability, and he brought these people for 40 years. He trained them. 
with signs and wonders and pillars of fire and smoke and, and amazing things like pra- plagues that would break out in their midst when they disobeyed. I mean, and at the end, they still were going, hmm, I don't know. The human heart is desperately in need of help. Again, Jesus says, my father's looking for worshipers. So what are we going to do? I'm going to backtrack here a little bit because I'm kind of coming in and out. But I want you to see something because the process is simplified in symbolic form, which is why we're studying the Old Testament because even though we, what, we, what we see is that God is getting, giving glimpses and getting a glimpse of the heart of God really brings richness to our worship now. So Jesus just gives us one sentence. My father's looking for those who will worship him in spirit. In other words, that in a spiritual, on the spiritual dimension that I will worship him whether I can see him or not. And then the truth is I've already described. But that's all he says. So we have to kind of backtrack. Okay, so he brings the father in. So what was the father looking for? How was the father looking to be worshiped? Well, that's the beauty of all this detail that we'll find as the people of God are out there in the desert. So what we find is God instructed them to build a tabernacle as a visual dwelling place for God to meet with his people. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 26 through on all the way through chapter 29 and specifically 45 and 46 where God gives the breakdown as to why the tabernacle is needed. But what we see is God says, look, I, I need to teach you, so I want you to build a symbolic representation of what's happening in heaven. So he can teach him. And, and that makes a lot of sense. It's almost how you would work with a child to say, okay, look, I can't take you to heaven, but I want to teach you how to be a worshiper. So I want you to build this tent of meeting. And inside it, I want you to, to put in these symbolic things that will teach you how to approach me, to teach you to value who I am, to teach you to value holiness, to teach you to value my presence. Now, this is all important and very, very good for us to, to not just drop and, 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 and uh, we're getting a glimpse of the heart of God and of what it's going to be like in heaven. Because this tent of meeting, this, this place that they're getting ready to build, again, is a picture of heaven and what we will see there and how we, God will be approached when we get to heaven. There is going to be this new Jerusalem. There's going to be the, 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 the temple where it's fulfilled in Christ. It's an amazing thing. Well, going on, it's a portable uh, worship center, if you will. It's a tabernacle. It's a place dedicated to God. It was portable, and God, and it moved with them when God said, okay, I want you to move. They would tear it all down and put it all again back together again. For 40 years they did that. 40 years. The tabernacle was a visual aid to teach God's people about his holy presence. It was to be, be built exactly as God instructed them down to the length of cord and the color of fabric. If they erred from his instructions in building the tabernacle or the prescribed waves of approaching God, they would be killed, put to death. If you just decided to go through the back of the tent or sneak up underneath the tent, uh, curtain and try to go into the, the Holy of Holies. If you tried to go there and see what was inside the, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, zap, you're gone. God says, no, this is, I'm going to teach you that what I require is worshipers. You need to be able to approach me in such a way as you're, you're taking evaluation of who you are 
and what you've been called to do. Now, this is all begging for something. This is all pushing for something. This is all setting up a need to be fulfilled. And we're going to talk about that later. So it's a great story, building the, uh, the tension in our story, going to the climax. In the tabernacle were the following items. There's a gate. But each one of these items has a specific spiritual represent. I can't get into all that. It's just, it's just way too much. But we might come back to it. But there's a gate, speaking of entering into the presence of God. And Jesus talks about the gate, doesn't he? He says, there are some who try to get into the kingdom of God by not going through the gate. Who, do, who or what do you think the gate is? Jesus. Jesus is the gate. The brazen altar a place where preparation has taken place, the labor, the cleansing of the hands, the menorah, of course, the, the lampstand of the presence and the promise of God being there, the table of showbread, God's, the, the bread, once again, an, an, a, a picture of Jesus Christ being what, what will feed us, what will be the ongoing sustenance of what we need, the golden altar of incense. Oh, that's a good one because that's what we did this morning is we burned an incense before God and we brought it up as a sweet-smelling sacrifice. I tell you, this is so hard for, every, for, for each one of these, to not, to, for me not to bust out, start preaching on what one of these things are, because I'm telling you, it is so rich. It is so powerful. And the, and, and the amazing thing is the Israelites hadn't a clue. They did not know the full symbology. Even angels desperately looked in to know as they looked at that tabernacle and said, what is he up to? Holy of holies, a place where God would dwell. And the Shekinah glory and a cloud of God's presence would come. And then, of course, the Ark of the Covenant, which were physical things that God had done and put inside that box. The manna, the, the Aaron's rod that had budded, the, the uh, almond uh, uh, stick or rod that had budded in the presence of the Lord. All reminders of the favor of God and the presence of God and God's commitment to the covenant. So we see this detailed progression of God's instruction that I want to point out in this tabernacle. I'm going to just look at it overall. We see that there are three sections. There's the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. The priests were to follow this progression explicitly or face death. In other words, they had to go through the gate and they had to go to that outer court where there was fellowship. Then they would go to the holy place where it was a place of preparation. That was then to say, okay, we are now getting ready. It was a time to, to, to focus. It was a time to say, okay, I'm, I, I've got it. For me to go into the presence of God, I've got to do some things internally. And there's the washing of the hands. There are these symbolic things that are taking place. God is saying, I want you to learn something. It's going to be physical so tactile learning, that's kind of cool, isn't it? Little for you teachers, little tactile learning taking place here so that they will eventually see this spiritual equivalent, and certainly for us. So they're supposed to do, so what can we learn from this progression? So from the outer court, the holy, and then the holy of holies? Now again, the holy of holies is where the ark was, it's where the Shekinah glory was, it's where God would meet with them, and, and, and where only a selected priest could go in there. And you know what? They had these little bells at the bottom of their robe that would ring. And as long as those were ringing, they knew that priest was alive. That's kind of the seriousness of this presence, the seriousness of this, this situation. 
So what can we learn about these steps as, as it, you know, for us today when we look at the tabernacle? So the outer courts, we, we, as, as the people of God, we come into fellowship with God's people in the assembly. There is a place of gathering, and God is glorified among his people in the outer court. So if we took these two, the, I mean, these three different sections of the tabernacle and we applied it to our worship today, it's pretty cool. And, and, and what I'm really doing is pointing out why we do what we do. Why is fellowship important? Because it prepares us for the presence of God. Fellowship, as we come together and we, because look, I mean, we look at one another. We are part of the body of Christ. We have been called together to one mission. We are no, there's no longer any race. There's no longer any gender in the presence of God. There's no longer any of that. Of course, all of that is here on the earth. But in the presence of God, we're all one people, children before God. And so fellowship is so critically important to prepare us for the presence of God. Do you see this? If we are not in fellowship, and you're not going to be able to enjoy the presence of God. Very, very critical. If we're not in fellowship with one another. So to even walk in this building requires almost that, doesn't it? But that's why I want to just encourage you to not be in such a hurry when, that, when I say amen that you hit those doors. Now, I, may, I know you might be an introvert, and maybe you struggle a little bit with, with social anxiety and those kind of things. Look, I can relate. But I'm telling you right now, fellowship with one another is critical to preparing us to understand more of God. And do you know why that is in a greater level? Because there is a lot of Jesus in every one of us. Not one of you has him all. But we all are part of what? The body. Some of us are thumbs and fingers and toes and some of us are arms and legs and nose. We're all different parts of the body. And what do we need? We need one another. And when we come into fellowship with one another, we come into a greater fulfillment, a greater, and it's preparation. Now, that's important for you to understand. It's preparation for more. It's not the end all, because we can get stuck in the outer, outer courts, can't we? You can call it the outer courts church. Church of the outer court. I don't want to go to church like that kind of church. I'm heading for the holy holies. Outer court's important, but that's preparation for what the deep things that God wants to do in us. Now, you might be saying, whoa, I never heard church talk about this way. It's about time. Because that's what is biblical. That is what Jesus is looking for. He says, let me tell you, my father's looking for worshipers. Worshipers, not attenders. Not going through the motioners. Nothing but worshipers. Outer gate, outer court, so important. Then we worship God by ascribing glory and honor to him and declaration of truths about him in the holy place. That's the next place. So we come through the door. We're, all, we're in fellowship, and we walk into the next place, the holy place. And that's the place of preparation. And to be honest, that's the place where we begin to ascribe unto God. We go from our vision, our look, from one another to start looking up. And we look up together. Now, we're not in that holy place yet. We're not in that place where we're recognizing the Shekinah glory, where we're saying, I'll get to that in a second, man. But in the holy place, that is a place of preparation. We begin to look up. What begins to happen? God, the Holy Spirit, is here and begins to remind us of our need for him. 
When you begin, when that music starts to go, when you're in fellowship, all of a sudden the next layer comes. You know what it is? I need to wash your hands. I need to understand what you are doing. When you begin to come, the music starts to go. We sing about the work of God. And, and, and so I'm telling you, when you begin to engage that way, you're opening up something. You're going to another level in the presence of God that will begin to prepare you for something even greater. And how does that, what does it look like? Well, I'll share just my own experience. I'm down there, and we start to sing about the holiness of God. We start, and, and I, I'm immediately going, okay, well, man, I, whew, I had a bad day Wednesday or this was going on, or even this morning, I was thinking the ugly thought when I saw someone else in church, or whatever, or somebody didn't say hello to me when I walked in the door. Your heart begins to get exposed in a good way because it's preparation. You don't go waltzing right into the presence of God in a disrespectful, unprepared manner. You just don't do it. That's what God was teaching the children of God. He said, look, you come through the gate, you prepare your heart. I want you in fellowship with one another, and then I want you to go to the holy place. And in that place, you wash your hands. You examine your heart. Now, the beautiful thing is we have the, we have the brazen altar. We have the, 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 the bowl of cleansing, and his name is Jesus. And a simple prayer, a simple focus, a, a declaration in your own, own heart, a, a, a quoting 1 John 1 and 8 and 9. Lord, I thank you that you're faithful and just through the work of Jesus Christ, that you have already provided for my forgiveness. So that, Lord, anything that comes up in my heart, if there's conviction, if there's shame, if there's guilt, if there's anything right now, I can wash my hands in the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross so that now my heart is prepared to come in an intimacy with you. That's what's taking place. We don't need that tabernacle anymore. We got Jesus. And all of this has been done. But you know what? Have you learned that it doesn't matter how much has been done unless you take advantage of it, unless you walk in it. It is just truth from afar. It is just a provision that is never picked up. It is a gift that is never opened. Which is why we do what we do. Why do we go to church on Sundays? Why do we do all this? Well, I'm, I'm enlightening you, my friends. It gives us an opportunity, and there is a special anointing on this that we should be taking advantage of. That we come in the corporate place of worship. It's beyond just the singing of songs. It's beyond just the comfort of sitting in those chairs or the lights or all of it. All of that is just the icing on the cake, but the goal is, is to meet with him face to face. So let's go ahead and go into those holy of holies. We come into contact, so we're speaking about God in his presence, and we declare, God, thank you for forgiving, thank you. Now we're ready to come into contact with the actual presence of God, where our hearts are fully laid bare, and the Ark of the Covenant, who is Christ, is a reminder of God's faithfulness to his covenant and demand for a sacrifice. And it's that place that opens the door. I didn't write them in the notes, but you can write it in there, because I should have said this, that that is now the door to intimacy. Now we can come into the presence of God with no fear. We feel fully welcomed. We feel at home, and we're standing there. And all of the people that I came in the gate with, you begin to get a little dim in my eyes. Not that I don't like you. I love you. But we're in fellowship, but now I'm with him. And Andrea and the team are leading us into songs, and we're singing, and, we, and we've got these choruses, and we've got this sense where you can, it's, almost, it's almost a palpable sense of the presence of God. 
We don't necessarily need the Shekinah glory. We don't need those things because in our spirit, we can get there right away. This may seem like an alien thing to you. As I look around, some of you are kind of looking at me, uh, no clue what you're talking about. Not here to condemn you. I'm here to say, hop in the water. It's nice. Come on, man. Follow us as we follow the Lord. Come into a place of greater intimacy because in that place, God is going to speak to you. He is going to speak to you. And he's going to reveal those things. And he's going to be faithful to do it. He's going to re- reveal the blockages. I mean, I'm sitting there worshiping God. And God says, David, um, we got a problem. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah. You can't have that in your heart. It's coming up. What did Jesus say? Look, there you are worshiping at the altar. And you know that you have ought in your heart before God. Put your gift down and go and make it with, right with your brother. I mean, it's all part of the process. It's a good thing. And when we do it week after week, we're keeping short accounts in our soul. We don't go. So when we only go CNE, when we become CNE ears and only go to church, Christian, uh, Christmas and Easter, man, you, gotta, you might as well just stay all day because you've got a whole six months of, of stuff you've got to work through. But if you do it week after week after week, man, you're keeping short accounts. Matter, matter of fact, there'll be those kind of Sundays where you walk in and you just say, Lord, search me and try me. Whoa, I'm good. I'm good to go. Of course, there's a greater goal in that we have that every day in our own homes, but that's another sermon. So we learn later that this system was only a foreshadowing of what God really, really wanted. He was training them, leading them toward the intimacy, intimacy that he wished for. Moses got a taste of it. And what did Moses say? He said, I wish that the people of God could get what I'm getting. And by the prophecy of the Holy Spirit says, it's coming, Moses. It's coming. And that's what we enjoy today. In this building, today. Anywhere you go, today. At your disposal. To be able to walk into the Holy of Holies. Now, I'm, I'm, I, you know, like I said, I get ahead of myself on this stuff. And I'm, I'm trying to be restrained to unpack this thing. Because when we get to when all this stuff bursts forward into what, what the glory this this whole thing is, it's just, it should, I hope it's overwhelming to you. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're not going to pass out in the middle of the service or anything. But, you know, I mean, it, it should encourage, encourage you so much. That's why we love worship here. I'm answering the question, why do we worship? Because it's an awesome doggone thing. That's why. Because we're setting the table for you to come in to the presence of God, meet with him face to face. We don't have to do a thing, but the Holy Spirit, we know if we get you in contact with him, oh man, he's going to love on you. He's going to help you. He's going to restore you. He's going to bring freedom, and he's going to do all the things that he promised that he would do for the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. You come out of the world, God, those four promises are still true for you. Hebrews 10, verse 3 and just selected sections of this chapter. Check this out. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, the whole sacrificial system that took place in that tabernacle came far short of what God was really wanting to do. But year after year, make perfect those who draw near to what? Worship. Again, the goal. 
It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's say that phrase together. Once for all for those who will recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We come into the Holy of Holies, and there is a freedom, there is a joy. We can come boldly into his throne of grace and receive help in our time of need. That's why we worship. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Can I get an amen, uh, amen out of that one? And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. How many of you, when you come to worship, are plagued by your failures? How many of you stop coming to church because you say, I'd rather be an honest sinner than a, than a hypocrite? How many of us stay in those outer courts or just staring at the tab tabernacle, wandering around it, hoping that one day, maybe one day, I can go into that holy holies, only to find that God, Jesus already said, look, you're all welcome. Jesus is every aspect. Of it. He, he, he takes us by the hand because he is the gate. He walks us through the holy place because he is the holy place. He takes us into the holy of holies right up to the ark because he is the ark itself. Conclusion, God teaches man how to approach him. And the people develop this habit, but they do not retain the heart. And that's a sad thing. David will be a different story altogether. You're not going to want to miss that. I love David, not only because that's my name, but I love David because of what he represents. He breaks all the rules. And you're going to see he's a glimpse more of what God is really looking for. So we're going to fill this sheet out, folks. Amen. Let's